I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. My guest today is Mary Rice Hassan. She is director of the Catholic Women's Forum at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She serves as their Kate O'Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies. She also, uh, as I mentioned, directs the Catholic Women's Forum. It's a network of Catholic professional women and scholars seeking to amplify the voice of Catholic women in support of human dignity, authentic freedom, and Catholic social teaching. She is an expert on topics related to women, faith, culture, family, sexual morality, and gender ideology. She's been a keynote speaker for the Holy See during the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women for the past three years. And she's a consultant to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. She speaks frequently at national, regional, and diocesan conferences and conducts workshops for Catholic parishes and dioceses on sexuality, gender identity, and pastoral care. Just uh, another note about the Catholic Women's Forum, it takes its inspiration from Pope St. John Paul II, who wrote that women have the task of assuring the moral dimension of culture. Oh, I love that, the moral dimension of culture, a culture worthy of the person. Christa Fidelis Laisi, uh, one, of, one of my favorites, paragraph 51, um, further inspired by Pope Francis, who wrote in Evangelii Gaudium, that great exhortation to, to be evangelizers. He wrote of a, uh, a need for a more incisive female presence in the church. So just uh, um, incredibly inspiring uh, moral and spiritual foundations to the work uh, that Mary does. Really excited to have you on the program. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be part of this conversation. Well, I'm glad you're here. And um, and I want to continue. And my listeners, regular listeners of the program, um, will be familiar with the topic that I want to talk about today, which is which is gender ideology. And in the past, I've talked with uh, theologians, uh, psychologists, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of keep those elements as part of our conversation. But um, the, the 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 purpose really having you on too, Mary, is I just saw a great testimony you gave before Congress. You have a law degree. Um, I really want to talk about the legal and policy implications for uh, for gender ideology, um, especially as our South Dakota legislature has kind of just been through a, a, dr- a dramatic experience with House Bill 1217, um, uh, ultimately did not override a gubernatorial veto. Um, so that's kind of the basis for our conversation today. But maybe as an entry point, just uh, one of the things that, I discovered, I think when you launched it, I don't know, it would have been a couple of years ago now, um, is a project that is, that's now called the Person and Identity Project. Uh, what, what is the Person and Identity Project and why might Catholic listeners be interested? Well, the Person and Identity Project is uh, the fruit really of about, oh, going on five, six years of dedicated focus and work by a core group of uh, colleagues of mine on gender ideology and just recognizing the need that uh, the Catholics and, and Catholic institutions really needed more information, needed resources, needed some guidance on how to understand some of the challenges we were seeing in the public square in terms of gender identity and the whole transgender agenda, but also some thoughts on, well, what does this mean in terms of our faith? How do we construct our, our school policies? How do we respond in compassion and charity to the person or the family that's experiencing different 
difficulties around these issues. So we... Um, We've actually been working in this space for uh, a number of years, giving talks and workshops. And but the personidentity.com website came about over the past year, thanks to the generosity of our Sunday Visitor Institute, mm. um, which helped us create a website and develop some specific resources. So we're hoping it, um, and it, it's already proving to be a very important hub for Catholics and and really people of goodwill, uh, not just Catholics, but it's it's Catholic in focus on who we are as a person and what why is the church so concerned about this issue of gender ideology and what do we do? How well, do we it, I want to stop you there just a moment. People of goodwill. I mean, isn't this I think there could be a temptation to think, is this just like a Catholic kind of view of the human person? Why, why do you bring in others that aren't Catholic? Well, good point. I, it's been very eye-opening working on this issue for so many years because it has successfully sort of decoupled and reconstructed a lot of previous political alliances and configurations. So a lot of the work that I do actually is in alliance with radical feminists who are very concerned about the erasure of sexual difference in other words, there, whatever we else we disagree on, we agree that human beings are male or female, and sex is immutable. It cannot change. And when the law no longer recognizes that, or when the law prioritizes gender identity, someone's self-perception above the reality of sex, that's a huge threat to women. So it has brought together this alliance of uh, people of faith with radical feminists, also people who are uh, by biologists, just pure science types, uh, many of them atheists, and but who again are focusing on the reality and are very concerned that if we as a culture no longer ground our laws, policies, and, and even our public conversations in reality, you know, the, the actual material reality, then we're really getting off base and it's going to result in harm. So, and, and then I would say the other group is just an assortment of parents and people who have had experience dealing with the harms produced by this. And again, just a wide spectrum of people who I'm sure we voted differently on all sorts of things over the years, but it doesn't matter. What's brought people together is the need to, to really, um, highlight the truth about who we are, male and yes. female, and then the, the radical threat that's coming in terms of, and is here, in terms of laws and policies, and even our media and our conversation, that's just um, malforming or has the potential yes. to malform a young generation. Well, and I want to, you, you use this word twice in the last minute, harm. I think there can be a temptation, maybe if we don't necessarily know much about the topic or we're, you know, we're going to mass and we've given our assent to the church, but haven't necessarily thought deeply with the mind of the church. There could be a temptation to say like, you know, what's, what's the harm really? Like, yeah, we disagree with these other people, but is it really that big of a deal? It kind of just strikes people as maybe mean or, um, yeah. you know, lacking in compassion. What, what are the harms? What are we talking about? Well, first, I, I think your intuition is correct. I think a lot of people don't see the harm. And in fact, I've had conversations where I've been talking to people who do youth ministry, Catholics, and they'll say, well, you know, I want to connect with these young people who are telling me they're transgender or non-binary. And, and so I want to affirm that and tell them I love them. And unless they take a step back and think, 
and what am I affirming here? You know, what's what's the truth here? Is mm. it going in a direction that, that leads to harm or that leads to human flourishing? And this, the reality of sexual difference is something that there's, there's no middle ground. We either are um, totally plugged into that reality and then make decisions on that basis or if we if we sort of uproot ourselves from that reality, then then we're floating off in all directions. And I'll give you an example: if if you are someone who does not believe in the reality of male and female, if you're if you're a woman, you get pregnant, you show up at the doctor. Who do you want to, um, treating you? A physician who really knows your body and knows that you're female and it looks very different from a male, and understands the birth process. It's a, it's grounded in reality. It's provable. It's factual. Or someone who who looks at you with your swollen belly and says, "What's your gender identity how can i help you you know between the two of them you're going to get very different results so i think people um leave with the heart but the heart has to be informed by the truth so in terms of, of actual harm i think the first thing to realize is that this whole transgender agenda or gender ideology or the gender identity movement whatever you you want to call it it, people say, well, it's just what someone declares themselves to be. So what's the harm? And, but the problem is that's not all it is. For the individual themselves, it almost inevitably leads them down a path where they are engaging in um, or seeking medical or surgical interventions to change their body to match their feelings. Mm. So already you've got two levels of harm. One, it's, it's a level of psychological harm to validate and affirm someone's false perception about themselves. Right. And I often think uh, I've raised seven kids. And if I had a, a kid who, um, well, I remember when, when my kids were little, we'd take them swimming. And, you know, the, the one who's five or six, who's not as good a swimmer as the ones who are 10 or 11, the five-year-old wants to be out there in the deep with, with the older kids. But if, yeah. if you can't swim, you can't swim. If they say, I can swim, and you sort of go with it, and, and you let them go in deep water, you're going to have a kid who's drowning. So we don't validate uh, distorted perceptions of yourself or of reality. If they say, no, it's only two feet here, but it's really six feet. I, you know, there's a reality there. So, so there's a psychological harm in validating someone's false perception of who they are. You are male or female. And then there's a, a bodily harm that comes when they, they seek medical treatment or medical interventions that are going to physically change their their body in ways that cannot be undone and that that affect everything from their sexual functioning to their fertility to their their body's overall health and so so those are two real harms just for the individual but i think there's another level of harm that it's it's harmful to us as a society when we can no longer recognize reality. And that's what we're seeing as people are, are losing jobs because they fail to use someone's pronoun, which doesn't conform to reality. It's just what the person wants to be called. But if it's not reality, how can you, what gives you the right to compel others to sort of be part of your, your imagined narrative? But right now the law is going in that direction of enforcing the participation of everyone in this narrative that is not grounded in reality. So that's a really dangerous place to be because people intuitively reject that. People don't want to be told that they must do something that's not, 
or they must say something that's not true. They must play along with something that, that they know is not grounded in the truth. And so government has to be more and more heavy handed. And, and that's what we're, we're seeing. So those are just, you know, broad strokes. And we haven't even gotten into more specific harms for women uh, and girls. And, and uh, I'm happy to unpack that for you. too. Well, well, maybe, I don't know, we could do so in the context of uh, your testimony on the Equality Act earlier this year, year you testified before Congress. Um, and I think at the same time, testimony was received uh, by the Senate committee uh, from Abigail Schreier, who, if I understand correctly, is a secular Jew, so not a Catholic woman, but um, both testifying in opposition to the Equality Act. Maybe just tell listeners a little bit about um, maybe a, a little summary of your testimony and what, what the Equality Act is. People may have heard about it, but like, why should we care? It's, I think, um, not an understatement to say that it's a strikingly dangerous and unprecedented act of law um, that we should know and care a lot about. Yeah. And and the name Equality Act is deceptive because there's there's nothing equal about what results from it. It completely tips the scales towards those who identify as LGBT and uh, causes harm, reduces the rights and deprives the re- the rights of women and of uh, religious believers, but even more broadly, others as well, because the Equality Act specifically says that it's expanding um, claims of, against se- or expanding the prohibitions against sex discrimination to include discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, um, and and some other things. It but it redefine sex in a way that doesn't acknowledge the biological difference of male and female. So that's that's the first problem. Second, by expanding this definition of, of sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity, you're privileging someone's self-perception over the biological reality of, of whether they're male or female. Mm. And so the law goes on to say specifically that access to what previously have been single sex spaces, bathrooms, locker rooms, women only gyms, things like that will can um, are now accessible or would be accessible on the basis of gender identity, not sex. And you will be sued for discriminating if you do not allow someone to access those private facilities because you're saying to yourself, no, wait, I'm running a support group for females who are, for example, were sexual assault survivors. But here's this male who says he identifies as a woman and wants to be part of this. You're not allowed to say, no, you can't come here or you can't restrict your bathrooms. Let's say you're running that support group for sexual assault survivors and you have a bathroom there that is has traditionally been sex segregated for the sake of privacy and safety for women under the Equality Act, that facility can no longer be restricted just to females, but it's open to anyone who identifies as a woman. So that specific part of the Equality Act puts actual females in jeopardy. And we've already seen in um, California, because a number of states have somewhat similar laws to the Equality Act, but not nearly as comprehensive. But in a state like California, we've seen uh, close to 300 male prisoners who are already incarcerated, many of them for violent crimes, sexual crimes, uh, re-identifying, in other words, self-defining their identity as women and petitioning to be transferred to the women's prisons. Now, those, those female inmates and those female guards in that 
those prison facilities get no choice about whether that a male is going to be put in to room with a woman or whether a female guard has now got to do a, a body search on a, a male who is passing himself off as a woman. So there, there's all sorts of intrusion there. So that's that's one aspect. And Abigail Schreier did a great job of uh, during the testimony of talking about the harms to to girls and to women in terms of athletics, because we see the same thing that under the Equality Act, anyone who identifies as a girl is going to be allowed to participate in sports under the how they want Title IX to be reinterpreted so that you would no longer have uh, sports restricted on the basis of sex, which puts women at a significant di- uh, disadvantage with the loss of, of all sorts of opportunities and scholarships and, and things like that. But perhaps more troubling about the Equality Act, besides the very significant fact that it, it um, just dismisses the reality of sexual difference and prioritizes self-perception as, as the defining aspect of who we are, is that it it greatly expands what's known as public accommodations. So civil rights laws that came out of the, um, the 60s, the desire to ensure racial equality, specified in the law that if you were running, if you had a, a place of public accommodation, a restaurant, a, uh, a bus, a, um, a stadium, things like that, that you could not discriminate on the basis of race. So that because we want everyone to be able to freely move about and and to just have the right to access these um, public accommodations. But under the Equality Act, public accommodations are redefined in such an expansive way that it specifically includes anything that is, quote, a public gathering or a public display. So if you have a Catholic high school that's having a a basketball game between two teams, and yes, you're allowing, quote, the public in because you've got parents, parents from the other team, all of a sudden, that's you're going to be a public accommodation, which means you can be liable for discrimination claims brought if you are discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in something, whether it's bathrooms, in how you, how you speak to someone, whatever it might be. And at the same time that the law expands this liability, the possibility that individuals, that that people who the law never previously considered to be in a public accommodation, they're all of a sudden, their liability is expanded. And at the same time, the Equality Act takes away the ability to uh, use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a defense. So, so you're expanding liability, and then you're saying, and by the way, here, we're taking away your shield, and so you're left defensive. It, it completely tips the scales. It's, it's a kind of a winner-take-all mentality to civil rights, which is never how we've done things here in the U.S. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a, I, and just so listeners know, it's, it's not likely to go anywhere, uh, thanks to the filibuster in the Senate. Um, it's likely to, very, very likely to, to just remain remain there, but um, it's really troubling insofar as it sort of, it shifts the window a little bit, I think, in the public's mind, and, and it makes the idea, these ideas seem less dangerous than they actually are. Um, the fact that it, you know, did really well in the House um, several years ago, um, and it's now kind of being brought up again as a, as a major priority 
um, for the executive administration. You know, one of the things that I think is going to be really important, um, just to listeners, this is a regional broadcast, Mary, here in South Dakota. I'm really interested in your thoughts on what a state policy agenda looks like in the next got about seven minutes or so remaining. You know, South Dakota, our legislature is kind of, um, kind of, uh, raised transgenderism, gender ideology in a number of different contexts, sort of medical interventions for children, sports, you know, just last summer, um, very quietly, the Department of Corrections in South Dakota adopted a policy that is looks like it's from the California one you mentioned. It wasn't reported on, but it's public record. It's up on the website. You know, what are, what are your thoughts in terms of just applying the virtue of prudence to like, what, what can we do or, or what should we do in the state policy realm? Yeah, and, and you raise really important questions. And, and before I answer that, let me just add an asterisk to your comments about the Equality Act being unlikely to pass. True, I, I think we're going to hold it off at least for this year. However, the Biden administration has put forth executive orders that at least in the short term and on the federal level, wherever there are federal dollars flowing, are going to accomplish many of the same purposes. So, so this problem is not going away. And, and that's why whether you look at it very locally and you say, well, what do we do here? Or whether you're looking at it nationally, it's important for every person to be aware and then to speak out for the truth. So in terms of what do you prioritize on the state level, I think first you step back and you think, you know what, we need to recognize reality. And what's the posture of our state towards reality? And, and part of reality is sexual difference, male and female. And that's a scientific fact, you can't change it. And, and so how does our state deal with that? Do we acknowledge that explicitly in the law, and that's what these bills as far as sports or restricting harmful medical care or medical interventions on minors, they're aimed at that truth, at acknowledging the reality of male and female. But it also goes to things like uh, birth certificates. You know, what's, what's the, and I'm not sure what it is in South Dakota or the surrounding states, but the majority of states now have moved to a policy where if someone, you're, you're born male or female, fact, it's just a fact. But if they later on start to identify as some other identity, whether it's, it's uh, you're born female and you're identifying as male or gender queer or whatever, that you can go back and you can petition to have your birth certificate, a record of the truth changed with no acknowledgement that a change was made. And so the practical effect of this, for example, is Catholic schools, when they enroll people, they ask to see their birth certificate, standard practice. Well, if you have a child whose birth certificate, they're born male and the parents are, are you know, acceding to their to the child's self-professed identity as female and they get the birth certificate changed, the school then is either doesn't know or they're constrained by their own policies. Uh, so, so what's the truth here? And I think that's, as legislators look at this, you want to, you, it's so important for us in a free society that we make room that people can, the law will recognize the truth and the people are not penalized for speaking the truth. And that to the extent religion is based on these fundamental truths, that there's you you make sure there's room in society, even if 
for some reason the majority goes in a different direction, religious believers need to be able to live out their faith and to make room for that. But it, I, I want to interject just because you raised birth certificates. I didn't. We had a bill this last year, House, House Bill 1076. It made it through our, our House of Representatives, but died. South Dakotans, listen up. It died zero to six in, in the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. And you, you can go look up and see who those six senators are that, that killed that bill. Um, and if they're one of yours, you could ask them, you know, why'd you vote this way? It's kind of important to do that follow-up. So thank you for raising the birth certificate issue. Yeah, it's uh, honestly, it, it's problematic because what we're seeing is a move to allow all sorts of identity documents to be changed just on the basis of a person's self-definition, their their gender identity, which again means as a society, we're moving away from, uh, from reality. What does our language really mean? If a woman is not a female, a woman is whoever declares himself or herself to be a, a woman, what does that really mean? So words become meaningless. How do we even communicate? How do we, how do we figure out what the common good is when we can't even find a common language to discuss? Well, well we've, we've got maybe just a couple minutes remaining here, Mary. I've got a little book um, on my shelf. It's called The Abuse of Language, The Abuse of Power by Joseph Pieper, who a philosopher I discovered maybe 10 or 15 years ago and I've come to love. And I've I've in my work now for the bishops too, I've come to see the bishops aren't interested in power. You know, they're not primary political actors in that way. What they're interested in is truth. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could just spend our closing minutes here. Just like, what do you, you know, what's our cause for hope? What, uh, what are we to do in the face of what is um, apparently a very difficult uphill cultural, political, uh, all the above sort of battle. Um, can we have hope in the power of truth? Sure, because you know what? Truth wins out eventually. But what we're trying to prevent is all the harm between now and when truth wins out. When mm, it's yes. Because when we deviate from the truth, the truth about who we are, the truth about what, what makes for flourishing families and, and whether it's good or bad to do certain things, there, there's harm in those decisions the more we deviate from that and we're seeing that in our society so have confidence in the truth one know the truth educate yourself if you're you're in doubt about some of these things you can come to our website personidentity.com the bishops also have some great resources educate yourself about the truth of the person and then have the courage to speak out even if it's initially in your in your family circle to your own children who may be absorbing a, a false message from the culture because i found that when one person speaks up people will look to the right and left and then you'll have 10 people nodding yeah it, cur- courage is contagious i think exactly. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, your, your point about forming, you know, learn, you know, learn about these issues. So again, the website, personandidentity.com, go check it out. And we've got resources up on the South Dakota Catholic Conference website too, which is sdcatholicconference.org. Um, it's, it's just a really important issue. And, and Mary, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to join us on the program today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again, uh, dear listeners, for tuning in. Like I said, it's, um, you know, this is an important issue. And sometimes I, I make the analogy to like you know, 1973, right after Roe versus Wade, you know, the Catholic bishops, they never wa- wavered on this. The church, uh, the bishops of our church were just so, so strong, even when it was really lonely at that point in time. Um, even some of our brothers and sisters in the Protestant churches with, that would agree with us in morality in a lot of different ways, we're, we're quite as sure. God, you know, God bless them. They've 
um, we've come to where we are today in the pro-life movement just because people had courage for so long. And I think that's where we might find ourselves today too. It can feel a little lonely, but it's so, so important to tell the truth. Until next time, live well.